This morning during announcement time, I asked, what would you do if God offered you anything that you asked? Well, little did I know that this was the lesson from the Holmquist class this morning, and Julie informed me tonight that that question was posed in that class, and the spirituality of the answers truly would blow us away. Barbie dolls, I think, was one. I tremble. I tremble to think who posed that answer. I have a feeling I might know. Uh, Julie, what were the other two? Weapons. Spiritual answers, I tell you. I'm sure it was the sword of the spirit. I'm sure that was being requested. And then phones. Indeed. Well, what would you ask, uh, request, if God offered you anything in your heart's desire? Now, this story is so well known. It's so famous. We won't spend a lot of time trying to understand the context. Other than to say, God was thrilled with Solomon's answer. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 3, the parallel passage in our Old Testament says, the thing that Solomon asked pleased the Lord. It thrilled his heart. And of course, you know the end of the story. Not only did God grant him wisdom, he granted him a whole variety of other things that one might have been expected to ask. Riches, honor, victory over enemies, long life. God says, I'll grant you those things too because of what you did request. Wisdom and knowledge for thyself, God says, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Do we understand why that request pleased God the way that it did? Do we understand why God was pleased based on what it reflected about Solomon? What I want to look at tonight is a message I'm going to title, God's Pleasure in Solomon's Prayer. God's Pleasure in Solomon's Prayer. And as we commission and appoint deacons tonight, I think there's a sense here in which Solomon's heart, Solomon's desire, is to be held up as a commendable example of what pleases God for any kind of leaders whether leaders in a church context, like we'll be noting tonight, whether leaders in a home context, anyone who has leadership responsibility over other people made in God's image. Let's try to understand Solomon's example tonight and ultimately what it spoke about him and why it pleased God. Let's start, first of all, by looking at Solomon's prayer. Solomon's prayer. We're here in the second book of Chronicles. We're in the first chapter. And notice the basic characteristics of what Solomon requests. Of course, he has gone before the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle of the congregation that is at that time at Gibeon. And Solomon went up thither. He offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. Now, if you think about the extent, a thousand animals slaughtered and sacrificed. How long would that have taken? What kind of incredible uh, uh, dedication would this have reflected? Verse 7 says, In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. Pray for anything. And notice what Solomon says. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy 
this kind of kindness unto David my father and has made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? What are some just very basic characteristics about Solomon's prayer? Notice first of all what it said about God's authority. What it said about God's authority. Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father and hast made me to reign in his stead. One part about God's authority is that he's saying my leadership is based on your divine grace, your favor. To whom? David. Now, why would Solomon have thought that? He knew where his dad came from. David wasn't the original choice to be Israel's king. Saul was. And Saul forfeited that position such that Samuel was sent to an out-of-the-way backwater Bethlehem. Not a place of significant interest. We remember in the Old Testament, of course, many years after this, but we remember what God said to, through his prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, to though thou be least, you are least among the cities of Israel. Here, this small, out-of-the-way place, God goes to one family out of, the, out of Jesse's family, and he picks the youngest of Jesse's sons to be his king. Notice, you have showed great mercy unto David my father, and it was undoubtedly true. But notice then what he says, and has made me to reign in his stead. He goes on to say um, in verse number nine, for thou hast made me king over this people. You have made me king over a people like the dust of the earth and multitude. Now, you say, why is that relevant? Well, think about Solomon. What was Solomon's birth order among the sons of David? If you go to 1 Chronicles 3, just make a little margin note maybe in your Bible or in your note. Take some time and go look at 1 Chronicles 3. Do you know where Solomon ranks there in order? David had six sons before Bathsheba's children were born with David. Of course, Bathsheba was a later on wife as a result of David's adultery. So at a minimum, you had six sons that had the precedent. Now, some of them died. We know Amnon died. We know Absalom died. And ultimately, Adonijah died after this point. But Solomon was not first in line. In fact, First Chronicles, interestingly, it's a little ambiguous. Solomon is listed fourth among Bathsheba's sons. Some have suggested, well, that means he was fourth in line. Others have said, no, based on what we know elsewhere, they put him fourth in line, but he was not actually. They put the oldest last. Whatever the, is the truth about that, you know that at least Solomon was not first in line. And God yet chose him to be king. So Solomon looks and says, why am I reigning right now? It's because you plucked my father out of obscurity as the youngest son out of a, out of, out of a place of Bethlehem and a family of not particular significance. And then out of order, you chose me. So he is reflecting on God's order in his authority. Not only that, he said, now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. Now, what promise was that? If you would just flip back a few pages to 1 Chronicles 28, you would hear this, what David said in Solomon's hearing. He said, and of all of my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, 
He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said unto me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. So Solomon is looking up to God, and he's saying, why am I chosen? It's all of your grace. And not only that, you have given a promise that I'm calling on you to uphold and to establish. It's your grace, it's your favor, it's your authority. But then notice what he turns to next. Israel's significance. For thou hast made me a king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Now this truly was a time of Israel's great prosperity. A time of Israel's peace from its enemies around it. This was a prospering, thriving nation. And Solomon looks around at at them. He was probably around 20 years old at this time, about 20 years old or so, and looks at them and says, this people has such incredible significance. And that drives him to a recognition of his own inadequacy. Notice what he says then in verse 10. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. Go out and come in. It's a kind of Hebrew idiom that just has the idea, let me do my job. Let me undertake my responsibilities faithfully. Let me go out and come in before this people. Now listen to this. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? God, I need wisdom and knowledge because you are the one who chose me. I am completely inadequate for this incredible task and therefore you must empower me for the responsibilities that you've placed in front of me. That's really the essence of Solomon's prayer. And that's why we need to look, secondly, at God's perspective on this. Notice how God responds. Verse 11, And God said to Solomon, Because this was in thy heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people, over whom I have made thee king. Let's pause for just a moment at the very start of that. What does God recognize? Because this was in thine heart. Solomon was not asking God for wisdom and knowledge, like crossing his fingers and saying, I think this will please him. And maybe if I please him, he'll give me some other stuff too. That's not what Solomon was saying. His sincere, genuine desire was for wisdom and knowledge. He wasn't just trying to please God or to give an answer that God would approve of. This was truly in his heart. By the way, this is a footnote. But do do we realize that our prayer reveals what's in our hearts? Do we realize what we're continually praying for in our devotional times shows us what we ultimately truly value and treasure? Do we understand how we pray corporately together in our Wednesday evening prayer times reveals what we care about, what we treasure in our life together as a church? We should use our prayers to ask God to reveal us, God, what is most valuable to me? Are my prayers centered around the kingdom of God and his righteousness and advancing that kingdom here on earth? Or are my prayers focused primarily on giving me an easier life, on giving me temporal blessings and on me things that I can enjoy in the here and now? Our prayer reveals what is truly in our heart. And God says, because this was in your heart and not that, not temporal, 
not kinds of self-centered requests. Notice that God's perspective was not just about what was in his heart, but notice what God reiterates. You have asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. So God is again reflecting Solomon's heart here and saying, you got it right. It's my people, and I am the one who has made you king. Now go over then to verse number 12. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. Friends, let's focus here on God's delight. What is God's delight related to the prayer of Solomon. Notice the contrast. What did Solomon request? Solomon requested that God would give him wisdom so that he could carry out his responsibilities to God's people. And what did God say? What was in your heart was not riches for yourself, not honor for yourself, not prestige, not long life, not victory over your enemies. What you have prayed for, what has been in your heart, has been the welfare of my people. We could say it like this. God's delight is in those who focus on their God-given duties and not on their self-centered enjoyments. That's what God delights in. He delights in those for whom he has given oversight, for whom he has given leadership, to see that leadership as a responsibility to be discharged and not a resource to be mined. Now, let me give you an example, I think, that has been helpful for me as I think about this. I want you to imagine that you own a mine, and in that mine is gold. You're the owner you will receive all the profits from it. Your goal, your purpose, is to get all the gold you can out of that mine because that's the sole purpose of that mine to you. The gold is not replenishing. It's not growing. There's nothing about it. There's a certain quantity of gold in the ground, and your job is to get all the gold out. And do you know what your natural uh, choice will be? You won't really care about what happens to the ground or the surrounding area. Your sole purpose will be to mine the gold that is in the ground that you own and to turn it into profit. Now, I want you to contrast that to an example of this. You are a gardener. You are a steward. You are a caretaker of a tree, a fruit tree, that you don't own. I want you to think about how your perspective toward a fruit tree that you don't own would be different from a mine that you do own. A fruit tree that you don't own, but you are tasked with caring for, your priority is not going to be on solely on the short-term advantages to be gained by that tree. Because the fruit isn't yours. The fruit is someone else's. They have tasked you with providing for that tree. And so your job toward that tree will to be having a consistent and flourishing tree, not just the fruit that's coming from it. 
Do you realize that the tree, that the more you take care of that tree and provide for that tree, there will be more fruit that grows from it? Yes. But your ultimate job is to care for the tree, not just try to mine as much as you can out of a piece of ground that you own. And I think God is distinguishing here between two types of approaches to leadership, to those who are in charge. There is a certain category of leader that looks at their leadership job as a mine to be exploited. I'm in charge. That means I get to say what happens in this house, in this church, in this position. That what I say will have positive effects for me because I get to decide. Because I get to set up the rules in which I benefit. I get to be the one at the heart of what's going on here. And that form of leadership is ultimately self-centered and ultimately destructive. It reminds me of a practice that was much more significant, a corporate practice in the 1980s and the 1990s, corporate raiding. You ever heard of corporate raiding? People got fantastically wealthy as quote-unquote corporate raiders. Some probably, frankly, here in the Twin Cities. My father may have represented one or two. I don't know. Uh, but do you know what a corporate raider does? A corporate raider is someone who, who notices a company that seems to be undervalued. Its stock appears to be undervalued. And what that corporate raider does is he goes and buys a ton of stock, maybe even a majority of the stock that will allow him to control the board of directors. And then what that very wealthy person does is he begins to force changes into the, com into the company. He forces the leadership of the company because he's got a controlling stake now in the company. He gets to tell them what to do. And his, his purpose is not the long-term health of the company. He doesn't really care about the long-term health of the company. What does he want to do? Profits. So he will focus his investment on an undervalued stock. He'll drive changes in the company that boost the stock artificially, not because the, not because the company is healthy. He may cut personnel. He may take other short-term perspectives. And suddenly, what happens to the price of the stock? It increases. And now, he, the value of his shares have massively gone up because he has raided the company for his own personal wealth, potentially then selling it at a massive profit and reaping a significant harvest, a bounty. Now, corporate law and other practices, strategic practices, have basically tamped down that practice of corporate rating in our day, but it was a significant thing in several decades ago. And you say, how does this matter? What is, what's the relevance? Well, again, think about a leader. Someone who has those that he is caretaking and can use them for his own personal profit. We see this even applying biblical doctrines. You think of the doctrine of submission, the submission of a wife to a husband or the submission of children to their parents. That is absolutely true. We preach it. And yet, how many times has that been abused by a husband who thinks that submission means that his life gets to be easy and his wife's gets to be hard? By parents who decide we can get respect and other things from our children in a way that ultimately is not about their wrong about their well-being but simply about my selfishness how many church leaders have ultimately used a church as a platform for their own personal gain for their own ability to get fame and prestige for it to be honored and respected and ultimately not cared 
predominantly, significantly their priority in being the well-being and health of that spiritual flock. This is a temptation for anyone who is in a position of overseeing someone else. Now, think about what the other example that we had. One who is overlooking, who is taking care of a fruit tree. A one who recognizes this fruit isn't mine. It's someone else's. It's God's. My job is to care for the tree. It might need pruning. It might need working on disease that's addressing the tree. It might require spraying the tree down. It might require watering. It might require sunshine. Whatever it is, my job is the long-term health of the tree because I'm providing fruit. I am bringing out fruit for someone else. And you see, this was Solomon's example. Solomon says, riches, honor, victory over my enemies, long life, things for me. No, God What's in my heart is that you'd help me to take care of your tree. That you'd help it to be fruitful. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may discharge my responsibilities faithfully. And God looked at that and he said, yeah. Yes. I'm pleased. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that God was pleased. Because what Solomon's perspective at this time in his life to leadership was exactly the perspective of the Son of God who came to show us what true leadership looked like. The one who our scripture says came not to be ministered unto, to see his flock as something to be exploited, but who came to minister, who came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Leadership truly is giving not getting. Leadership is seeing a responsibility to, dis- to discharge, not a resource to be exploited. Listen to Philippians chapter two. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves or l- put their minds on others, not themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, emptied himself, and took upon him the form of a servant, a bond slave, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He went yet lower, and what did he do? He went to the cross, the ultimate form of humiliation and subjugation for a ransom to be paid for us. God here was simply delighting in the kind of character that would be reflected in his son that came to be a servant. Now we should stop here for just a moment in terms of God's perspective here. Whatever source of leadership we have, it could be in a home. It could be over children, whether a mother or a father. It could be in church leadership. It could be in a Sunday school class. It could be on a bus route. It could be in a work position. Wherever we are, whatever our calling is, do we have the perspective that, God, these are yours. These people, these responsibilities are yours. They're not mine. I am preparing them for you 
And therefore, do we have the sole focus that, God, you are calling me to discharge my responsibilities faithfully toward what is yours, not to mine them, not to extract resources from them for my own self-interest. That is at the heart of all of God's calling, and it is at the heart of God's calling for deacons. Because we've brought out that the very idea, the very word deacon in the Greek is servant. Servant, one who serves. This is why I think the reaction of our hearts to the churches who select deacons based on their prestige in the community, deacons based on their amount of giving to the church, deacons on the, on the basis of how it will reflect on the church, so miss the mark. Because ultimately, to be a deacon is to be a servant and is to take what is God's, the church, the congregation of God, and serve and discharge responsibilities faithfully for his glory and for his good and not for my selfish interest. So notice here Solomon's prayer, all about God's authority, all about his own inadequacy and his need for God. Notice God's perspective, pleasure, delight in Solomon's focus. But then let's see finally our peril. Our peril. What am I getting at here? I wish I could say there was a happy end to this story for Solomon. But you know the end of the story, don't you? What is the story of Solomon's life? The story of Solomon's life is a man who in this young age, around the age of 20, has a heart that is utterly motivated for God's glory to be discharged through his responsibilities. And what does it end? A man who has walked away from God. A man whose heart has been taken away. By what? By some of the very things that God blessed him with. That's what's so, that's what's so tragic about this. God says to him, Solomon, I not only will I give you wisdom, I'll give you riches, I'll give you honor, and I'll give you the lives of your enemies. And what is, how does Solomon use it when God blesses him? For his own good. Notice a couple things here. Notice what God told the Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here's what he says about the king that would be over the land of Israel. He said, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has sent unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And now think about Solomon. Think about the incredible wealth that he multiplied to himself. The horses, in fact, scripture highlights the number of horses and chariot horses that he accumulated over time. You say, why is this relevant? Well, notice what Solomon's wealth and honor allowed him to do. What was the fundamental thing? What was the most basic cause that scripture assigns that led his heart away into idolatry and serving foreign gods. What was it? His wives. His wives. Friends, do you know why Solomon married 700 women and had 300 concubines, 1,000 different women as partners? Think about the first that he took. Where was that first wife from? Egypt. 
Why would a young king marry an Egyptian princess, the daughter of the pharaoh of Egypt? Why would he do that? Because it was good foreign policy. Why would kings intermarry? Because they knew that if they married the daughters of their enemies, those enemies would be less likely to attack them. They would intermarry and their families would become connected and it was security. The king of Egypt's not coming to attack me because he's going to be attacking his own family. And do you listen? Do you hear what God says? Listen in 1 Kings chapter 11. But King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. What do you think was motivated? It wasn't just lust. It was a desire for security, a desire to have good foreign policy relations, along with the concubines, who probably were just simply avenues for his lust. Now, what's the point? The point is that Solomon was able to take these wives in part because of God's blessings. You couldn't have a thousand women harem without being really rich. You couldn't have a thousand women harem unless people wanted to marry you because of your honor and your prestige and your security. God's blessings to Solomon were not reinvested into the kingdom of God. They were used as currency to buy what Solomon ultimately wanted, what his craving and desire ultimately was. And friends, if we took that principle for ourselves as the gravest warning when God's blessings are not reinvested into our kingdom responsibilities, but they become currency, they become payment for us to get what we actually selfishly want out of the whole thing. I remember a relative of mine giving investment advice. This was a man who has become tremendously wealthy from stock investments that go back into his family uh, uh, before predating him. And I remember what he said once. He said, you know, sometimes these companies will have dividends. They'll offer profit back to their stockholders. He said, here's the key. Here's the key. Here's what I want you to know. You always, when they offer you that, don't never take cash. Buy more stock. When the company offers you a pay, a payment, a dividend, use it to buy more stock. Don't take the cash. And I was reminded of that. Because do you know the kingdom's the same way? Sometimes God gives us a blessing in our family or in our work situation. Our income goes up or our church grows or we have a greater scope of influence in whatever God has called us to. And do you know what our selfish reaction is? I'll take the cash. I'll take the currency. And I'll spend it on myself. Again, literally or figuratively. And what does God say? Have I given you income? Why don't you reinvest it in my kingdom and see what happens? Have you had some other blessing in your work influence and calling? Why don't you pour it back into the kingdom and not spend it on yourself? Friends, if we were just this practical, how many pastors, the source of their greatest destruction has been the growth of their church that has caused them to say, it really is about me. I'm a fantastic preacher. I must be really important to God. I've told this story before, but the fact has just shook me that when Ravi Zacharias, it was reported that when he was involved in so many of these awful extramarital adulterous relationships, 
He was a reported to have told one of the women that he was being immoral with, this is God's reward for my years of faithful service. Can you imagine the incredible deception of someone saying, I deserve this. This is God's blessing to me. Yes, God, I'll take the cash, all this influence, all this honor, I'll spend it on myself. It's not even just in the realm of of churches. What about those who have pursued athletic fame and fortune and found that along with it comes the opportunity for great sexual exploits and they say, I'll take the cash. I'll take the cash, thank you. What about those in politics who electoral success has suddenly found them having the choice of their integrity on the line? I'll take the cash. I wanna keep getting elected. I don't wanna stand for the truth anymore no matter what it costs. You could go on and on. Those for whom blessings that God has given them are not reinvested into the kingdom, but are cashed out and taken for their own benefit and for their own pleasure. And ultimately, I think our example, our challenge and our encouragement, whether it's to our deacons who are being appointed tonight or whether it's to anyone else who has seen God's resources, God's blessings, God's responsibilities in a particular area of life, Am I going to plow those benefits, those blessings back into the kingdom of God and discharge my responsibilities faithfully recognizing that ultimately it's all about him, not about me? Or am I going to cash out and say, God, I like this. I like spending this on myself. I like the honor. I like the riches. I like the security. Friends, whatever it is, Let's remember when God gives resources and opportunities, let's reinvest them for the kingdom, not cash them out for ourselves. One more thing. What is the ultimate also character that we should be looking at? What are we desiring? Have you noticed the focus in this passage on the heart? Have you noticed what God says to Solomon, this was in your heart? Have you noticed what God says about Solomon, that his wives turned away his heart? Solomon knew this. Proverbs chapter 4. This is a special passage to me. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues, the springs of life. I remember not long before my father died, I asked him, I said, what advice would you give me to be a pastor, to lead a church? And all he said was, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Why? Because out of it are the springs of life. And so to our deacons who are being appointed tonight, and to all of you who either are in a place of your own leadership in whatever calling of life it is, or whether it's you who have received some resources and some blessings and some opportunities recently, my challenge to you is exactly the same. Keep your heart. Guard your heart. Remember, as Tim Keller said, we need to remember that we're saved by grace when we fail, but we need to remember it even more when we succeed. Keep your heart, for out of it are the issues of life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your example through the life of Solomon, a tragic example. And yet, thankfully, thank you, Father, for that example being played out perfectly in your son who came to show what it was to have a leadership that was based 
on service, not on selfishness. And I pray tonight, Father, that you would encourage and challenge each one of our hearts that with whatever blessings and resources, with whatever callings and leadership you have given us, that we would recognize that our job is to discharge those responsibilities as unto you and not pursue them as a resource to be exploited.